0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the IP Pogscast. Today, I'm joined by Daniel, a historian of agriculture. And if you're hearing this, it's probably the holiday season. Sit back as Daniel and I take us through the birth of civilization and the vastness of time. Enjoy. So, you know, you're, you're a well-read historian. Um, yeah. How do you think history has kind of morphed as kind of a cultural kind of concept lately?
1: Well, I think, I think history has really been divorced from what it originally was meant to be.
0: What was it originally and, meant to be?
1: Well, I mean, like, you can see it in just America, right? History, like, we still celebrate Columbus Day. We right. celebrate Confederate statues or heroes or whatever. Um, we, met, we basically form history to what our cultural perception of it is at the time. Right? So a good, a good example is in the 1960s, uh, especially in universities, Marxism was really big. And you can see it in every history writing in the 60s. You can see an inherent uh, underlying passive bias towards Marxism. And it, it's very interesting to read these historians because they all come across as trying to argue for the same point in different historical contexts. Right, and and that really affects uh, how history is perceived. Right, like an example of like say uh, you're an Incan, right, and you throw gold in a river, and you're throwing that gold in that river because you believe that it is a sacrifice to the gods. To you, that gold holds no intrinsic value. You use the barter system. You trade things, so there's no such thing as money. So gold to you is just a useless metal that can be used as an ornamental uh, thing, and you use it to make idols to your gods and sacrifice them to appease them, right? right? Now, say if you were going into it with a cultural context that does not have any anthropology in it, you would look at that as, oh my god, this guy's throwing away money for no reason. And um,
0: Right, but that, that, that's bringing the biases of your own culture. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, you're using your own culture as a bias against another culture. That may not be true, and that's not real history. And that is happening to a lesser extent in the modern age, right? It's right. like how people nowadays are like, oh, Columbus was an absolutely terrible person, right?
0: Wasn't he, though?
1: Uh, he was, but... People forget that a lot of the cultural uh, context and a lot of the history we get about Columbus is from his fellow conquistadors. He didn't actually write anything himself about his expeditions.
0: So, so a you're saying, of, so, so, but what does that mean about Columbus?
1: It means that uh, we're getting we're getting sources from like rival conquistadors, people who were also absolutely terrible. So, so, so you're saying know, they would
0: have talked down on Columbus.
1: Yeah, they, they basically wrote Columbus to be as evil as possible so that the stuff they were doing did not look as bad.
0: I'm going to have to look more into that.
1: Uh, and a lot of people are... Start, like, Columbus was probably still bad because he did come back with slaves and stuff like that. Right. But a lot of uh, Spanish people at that time, especially during the conquistador or conquests of uh, South America, were terrible, terrible people. Some of the worst... Uh, people in humanity right Mm. and I mean uh, before like in the 1920s to 40s we looked at these conquistadors not as terrible people we looked at them as adventurers explorers people conquering a new land you know what I mean right it's like how we looked at the manifest destiny uh, in the 1940s as in 1920s right as a god-given right and that it was useful and it was good uh, in the 1940s and 60s, right, we looked at Confederate war heroes not as uh, terrible people, but like as tragic heroes. Mm. And a lot of that is based off the culture that they were in.
0: And by and by, we you're talking about historians, right?
1: Yeah, basically historians, and that historian uh, would release a pamphlet, right, and that pamphlet would disseminate into the population of the time. It's Mm -hmm. like how people in the 60s were like, oh, Columbus was a good guy. He discovered America. Let's make Columbus Day to celebrate him discovering our wonderful country. Right. But in reality, he did not discover America first. Uh, He did not. He was not a wonderful man. Was it Leif
0: Erikson? Did Leif Erikson discover America first? uh, Well, I
1: mean, you could argue that the first people to discover America. Oh, are the 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 people who lived here. Yeah, Yeah, the Native Americans. And that the, yeah, but Leif Erikson and a Chinese expedition were here first.
0: I think that's like a great example though, because even just what I said, that's like a very Eurocentric view that like it had to be a European to discover America.
1: Yeah. It was that America was discovered instead of just taken over. Right. It was already inhabited. Hmm. And I mean, it's, it's, it's that Eurocentric view that we in history are deal with today. Right, like right. we've gotten a lot better with recognizing, oh, Confederate generals were terrible people, right? But Union generals were also terrible people. Basically, history is full of people who are terrible. <laughs> but then you're like, but then you have to take a step back and realize that you're considering these people terrible in your own cultural context and your own moral framework, right? Back in the day, say, Genghis Khan slaughtering a city of one million was not seen to him as bad in his cultural context. It was not morally wrong to him. Right. But to us, that is morally reprehensible. And to fully get the true history, you have to detach your own moral uh, compass away from the history that you're observing
0: but but isn't the true history kind of i mean i mean kind of the true history that you're talking about isn't it kind of almost boring because it lacks any kind of context right it's like the straight facts so it would have to be stuff like columbus killed x number of people uh he went here he did this but it can't have any sort of um it can't have any sort of spin but i think it's the spin i mean like not even the spin but the perspective that gives it gives it meaning right because like for int- if, for instance like if every if every world leader in the past was like stalin um i mean i don't think society would be where, where it's at right now but if every world leader you know in the history of the world was like stalin for instance the th- like like you wouldn't have to write all of these kind of i don't know these pr- Kind of, uh, you wouldn't have to write from a perspective that would indicate, like, you know, all of these subtleties of Stalinism, right? Because, of course, you have like the overt stuff, like things that Stalin did, but you, but, but I think one of the things that kind of secondhand accounts do, and and maybe firsthand accounts actually do well, is that they kind of capture like the the actual perception of what's going on, which, from like an like you were saying, from like an, an anthropology perspective, is equally as important
1: yeah, that's that's the difficulty, right with but it's like a it's like a really weird um, thing where once you remove your moral framework, right, and get to the true history, right, that's when you start to build the moral framework of that time, right? So like I said, so like we know Genghis Khan destroyed this city at this time, killed this many people and uh continued on we know how many men were in his army we know where he was right but the things that make history interesting is we are really like how did he do it what weapons were he using what was going through his mind yeah, yeah what was his motive what was the motive behind it right and you use true history to get to that motive you have to basically work way your way back to the root of history, and then work your mm. way back up. It's So it's, it's like, it basically, history is very difficult because you have to do that on your own. You have to remove your own bias. And mm. even removing your own bias, you still have bias in that history. That's why you have to go down to the core, which is just true history, just facts, and then work your way back up using anthropology and other historical accounts and even then you still have to use some of yourself to build that moral framework back up
0: do you think i guess kind of in that in that respect do you think it's going to be easier to be kind of a historian of um i don't know like 2020 because like we have like firsthand camera accounts of pretty much everything that happens um like well true and you have like widespread so like you don't have to like guess the the public perception based off of, like, one person from one social class who was literate, you have now the perception of, uh, I don't know, millions of people, for instance, in the United States, hundreds of millions um, of people that are shared pretty readily, like, on the internet.
1: That's that's the difficulty of the internet, right? Because if we go off the internet being a completely changing force, right? Because we have, like, say, the 1950s, right? Mm-hmm. We have a ton of history on it. Primary sources abound. We have people who still live from that era, right? We know so many things from that era, but we still can't encompass or encapsulate or completely diagnose that era, right? We can't, we can't find... We can maybe try to build a moral framework of that era, but depending on the region, there's different moral frameworks. And then those regions interconnected create a completely separate moral framework from the base moral framework.
0: Right, but it, it almost seems like what we're talking about when we when we start to get into this talk of moral frameworks isn't as much history as it becomes
1: like anthropology, right? Yeah, so, but but anthropology is interconnected with history. Okay, it's it's very difficult to separate the two. It's like how archaeology is mm. uh, intertwined with history. It's so like if you go basically off pure history. You can only go off of written primary sources, and right. that would leave you an incomplete picture of history. So that's when you have to add in geography, you have to add in um, anthropology, archaeology, um, even some forms of geology, biology. Right? Hmm. Like uh, you have to. You have to. Any form of data you can get about that certain time period, you can encompass into it, and that actually helps us figure out if a primary source is lying or not, because that has happened a lot. Because mm. those sources on Columbus we were talking about earlier were originally considered primary sources. But then through analysis of anthropological data, analysis of um, court records and stuff like that, you start to realize that a lot of the things they're saying are not true. So that they're you're-
0: so you're so you're a Columbus apologist.
1: Well, no, I think he's a terrible person. I'm just saying that a lot of people have different motives within history within their own time. No, no, no,
0: no. I, I I understand what you're saying. I was just joking with you. Um, kind of in that vein, like, what yeah, do you from think, Columbus? Okay. <laughs> so, um, kind of in that vein, like, w- what do you think? Kind of the place of agricultural history is. Kind of in the grand scheme of history, because like I've previously seen agricultural history as like a driving force um, behind, I, be, I guess behind history in general, right? Because it's what allows human beings to, you know, move and start permanent settlements.
1: Yeah, agricultural history is probably one of the most interesting forms of history because a lot of people don't realize when certain things were invented. Uh, agriculture began around uh, 10,000 years ago, according to our current knowledge. There's arguments like it began 20,000 years ago, right? But our current knowledge, it began 10,000 years ago. And agriculture uh, specifically needs a couple things to form. It can't have too harsh of a climate, like, say, up uh, in the Arctic or in a desert, right? Most people who lived in an Arctic or desert environment continue to be hunter gatherers, never right. transitioned over into agriculture.
0: Right. They're, per- they're permanently nomads, right?
1: Yep. And another, another uh, big key thing is, say, like um, most of Northern Europe, most of Russia, a lot of um, parts of North America, right? The nature was so rich and provided so much that they never had to transition into agriculture. They could be hunter-gatherers and never had to worry about anything else. Right. It's in the areas where there was not enough abundance of something to support a hunter-gatherer style, but it wasn't harsh enough that things couldn't grow.
0: So okay, this is kind of related, but kind of the way that you're talking about this, it seems like historians view the, the basis of everything that happens in an area first off of the geography of that area, right? So whether or not it's a tundra or a desert, or, or, is that only, or is that only applied to agricultural history?
1: Well, I mean, it applies to almost every form of history. Like, let's say, um, like the Sumerians, for an example, the first uh, major agricultural civilization, and they started out in between the uh, deltas of the Tigris and Euphrates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, um, they were able to grow wheat, right, for most right. of their history. Uh, they, they existed for about 3,000 years, which is a long time, especially in our mm-hmm. age. And, but as time went on, about uh, 1,500 years into them growing wheat, they transitioned from wheat into barley.
2: Hmm.
1: And the reason for that was that the Tigris and Euphrates are tributaries of um, a much larger uh, river stream up in the Taurus Mountains in Turkey right and they flow down and eventually uh, end up in the uh, red sea right Mm -hmm. but um what happens is salt minerals specifically would get picked up in these mountains and over a thousand fifteen hundred years the salinity content of the soil would go up Mm -hmm. and salt for wheat is terrible but barley really loves salt and can grow pretty well in salt environments And by the times the Sumerians collapsed completely as a civilization, they had gone from originally 90% wheat, 10% barley, into 90% barley, 10% wheat. Hmm. And that is important, especially uh, because that geography, right, leads to the basis of their food. And food plays a large uh, cultural part and actual part in how a society develops and how their history is played out. Right. So I know the, when they were in a wheat-based economy, right, uh, bread was a lot bigger. Uh, breaking of bread, you know, the breaking of bread that actually, that actually originates from the Sumerians. A lot of, a lot of Sumerian uh, cultural uh, themes and a lot of Sumerian religion would eventually proliferate into, uh, like, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the cultural things too, like uh, the women wearing a hijab, right, or a face covering, originated in Sumeria. Hmm. Do you know and, why? Do you know why that originated? Um, most people. But the problem with the Sumerians is that uh, a lot of their cities were destroyed, not just by modern day um, events, but uh, they, they collapsed in what is known as one of the like hundred years of turmoil okay Where there were earthquakes almost uh, we don't know exactly what caused this crazy but there's like droughts of 30 plus years there were earthquakes like every year major earthquakes like 8 on the magnitude scale
0: right so it's like uh, it's like god's wrath type yeah thing. there's
1: there's basically 100 years of just complete chaos hmm. and uh, because of the collapse of these uh, societies that had lasted for so long right uh, like agricultural history itself leads lends credence, like uh, like the Aztecs specifically.
2: Mm.
1: Like their whole uh, cultural basis, they came from uh, northern Mexico around New Mexico, and they migrated down to what is currently Mexico City and the lake at, on Mexico City. And that lake was home to five separate city-states. hmm And they had controlled all the land around the lake. But the Aztecs were used to farming in an extremely harsh environment. And they saw a really small island out in the middle of the lake. And they used their agricultural techniques to build large floating farms, Mm. uh, interspaced outwards. And they built an entire city on those Floating farms, and being like having that access to that large supply of food, balloons a population.
0: Right, of and course.
1: Ballooning a population in general creates culture, because the more human interactions you go through, the more uh, experiences you're exposed to, uh, the greater understanding you start to find common ground, and especially. Like a, like if you ever come to say uh, like the Central Africa or um, North America specifically before Europeans came to either region, right?
0: So so if you went to if you went to Central Africa or North America before,
1: yeah, before guess, Europeans, before colonialism, okay, uh, you would find thousands of cultures, thousands of languages, right? But hmm. say if you went to the Yellow River or Yangtze River in China after the foundation of agriculture, you'd find one, maybe two cultural groups compared to the thousands you'd find in a hunter-gatherer society. So, so
0: are you saying culture... I, I mean, are you saying that agriculture actually almost slows the spread of culture? Uh, is it, it condenses a population?
1: It doesn't slow the spread of culture. It expedites it and then makes a core culture. okay. So uh, basically, hunter-gatherers were never able to unify and make a city because they never had a common ground. They had different cultures, different experiences, different languages, right? But being uh, in a close proximity, having extra food, more intercommunication creates a more uniform culture. And that allows for greater uh, creations of civilizations. Multiple Mm. cities connected together together. All sharing the same language, same culture, right? And that's and that's a major development, especially that agricultural history is the start of everything. Without agricultural history, we would never be able to create civilization.
0: Right, but once agricultural history kind of comes around, aren't there people who try to take advantage of it? So, I mean, like, for instance, Genghis Khan's a great example of a, of a pillager. Is he like a defining warlord?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. pillagers and warlords, yeah, uh, are very um, interesting, right? They're almost like a reaction to this. So um, it's, it's like in the Sumerian culture, over the Taurus Mountains, where the tributaries of uh, the Euphrates and were there were these people that the Sumerians called the hill people. And they were—they basically referred to them as barbarians, as we would refer to them. And these barbarians actually grew in size and proliferated their culture in response to the Sumerian civilization.
0: So are barbarians almost like parasites? They're like parasites? Yeah, they're almost,
1: they're almost like a parasitic-type deal. And it's very interesting how these parasitic-type deals develop. Like, they will almost exclusively developed next to a large civilization. Like, mm-hmm. Genghis Khan developed next to the, the Han dynasty of China, right? right, which was probably one of the greatest civilizations in China's history. Like one of the best dynasties in terms of just overall size, basically. Okay. And that's, okay. And that's, like, a, that's like, a very interesting... Like, agricultural history basically pushed humanity forward at a pace that was revolutionary and every advancement in agriculture was an advancement in civilization
0: right but these these warlords i mean like we hear about them a lot more than we hear about the agriculture so like how did they shape i guess history compared to the agriculture
1: um uh, warlords themselves are very interesting they can either come from a civilization who's based off agriculture or a civilization who is not based off agriculture. Now a lot of the warlords that you know of um, are it's basically like a 50-50 split, which is a weird thing to say. It's not like skewed to one side. But,
0: but are there are there significant differences between the two different types of warlords? I guess the,
1: the uh no, not, okay. not really. So like one like say You're a civilization, and you know there's a barbarian tribe next to you, right? And that barbarian tribe is raiding your territory and being parasitic, parasitic, right? Mm. You're Caesar. You decide, I'm going to go conquer and civilize those people, right? Right. So you go there, and you conquer them, and you civilize them. Now, let's say on the reverse, Attila the Hun. Mm. He sees the Roman people as civilized, and he sees them as having things that he does not have. Uh, They have swords, they have um, large amounts of food, all these things that he needs to sustain his people. He goes and conquers them. They're basically conquering each other for similar reasons. And it's always that dichotomy between a roaming band and a civilized society. Only later on, after some agricultural revolutions happen, after the first agricultural revolution, You start to get wars between civilized societies.
0: So, so do you ever have like, I guess what are called, I I guess what you would kind of call like a barbarian society, or is that just not possible?
1: Oh, it's possible. It's just they don't last long. So let's say let's use Genghis Khan as an example. Right when he reigned, uh, the Mongolic hordes he basically reigned over a nomadic horde of. Like marauders, basically, and when mm-hmm. he took over all of the land of Choresmia, most of Parthia, or what was left of it, um, the Russian principalities raided Poland and Hungary, right, mm-hmm. and half of China. Um, he like he, while he was in power, they were a nomadic horde, but the minute he died and his fourth son took over, um the sun started to turn them into a civilization. He, like, instituted bureaucracy, the postal service. He instituted mm. uh, collection, uh, resettlement, stuff like that. Usually a warlord, like Attila the Hun is a great example as well, where he comes in as a Turkic invader horde. But the minute he dies, his people transition over into the civilization that they conquered. Hmm. That's why a lot of Latin and Roman type ideals, especially in Italy are maintained today because the Lombard hordes came in, invaded all of East uh, Western Rome, right? Took over most of it, but their language, the Roman language was used by them and eventually fused with their own. The Roman culture was fused with them. Mm. A lot of their farming techniques and, Farming what they farmed originally stayed the same. Uh, it's it's very interesting that um, usually what happens is a, a nomadic a nomadic horde can have an effect on a culture, but it will not change the original civilization. While on the other way around, a civilization could completely change a nomadic culture.
0: Right. I I guess kind of. So we have these examples of warlords that you gave, but do you th- do you ever think about I guess, like what happened, I guess, before agriculture and before writing? So kind of like prehistory?
1: In uh, prehistory, especially with, uh, like when you study hunter-gatherer groups, right? They, uh, never, they never would coalesce. It would usually be tribal wars.
2: Okay. Um,
1: so uh, probably prehistory, there was never any major warlords as we would know them. It would probably just be small, minor conflicts between tribes for territory.
0: Why is prehistory important? Or is it important?
1: Uh, prehistory is important for a couple things, right? Because if you can figure out how it all started, right, um, you can start to figure out how to... what the through lines in history are. What are the major plot points that matter? Uh, mm. like, spe- like prehistory... In itself is um, important because there's a lot of thing in, a lot of things in prehistory we don't know about. Like uh, one of my favorite history theories right now, because it hasn't been proven, is the Younger Dryas. Uh, I've heard uh, that asteroid hit.
0: Is, is, yeah, is it is it Younger Dryas? I don't know. I, I've heard I've heard this term.
1: Yeah, it's it's basically an asteroid hit the Earth 12,000 years ago. But we can't confirm that an asteroid hit the Earth. It may have been a volcano explosion, right? But basically, in the ice core samples, there's an increased level of soot, like crazy amounts. Basically, the sun was blacked out for, uh, I don't know, like a couple of years, maybe 50, 60 years, right?
0: Did, did humans exist when this happened?
1: Yes, humans existed when this okay. happened. This is, this is at the end of the Ice Age, Right. And that's, that's why, that's why most people believe that that Younger Dryas event actually ended the ice age prematurely. Like that's why, that's why climate change is so like uh, interesting, right? Because we're actually supposed to be on earth cycle still in an ice age, but it was ended prematurely by a separate like, uh, astrological event
0: or a giant volcano.
1: Yeah. Or a giant volcano. Exactly. But the the problem is like if that's true, is say if there was ten thousand years of civilization before us, uh, t- ten thousand years like twenty thousand years ago, there was a civilization that was massive. It was like Rome, right? We would have no evidence of it. We wouldn't know it existed.
0: Oh, so so everything, everything. I don't know how big is this asteroid that we're talking about.
1: Well, I mean, if it it completely blacks out the Earth, it'd it'd be pretty big. I mean, like, it'd probably be the size of uh, a little bit smaller than the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs. Like, probably, like, half the size of the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs. Mm. It basically would just throw up enough uh, ash and dirt into the atmosphere that it would completely cover everything. So say if you're a civilization, right? Okay. And you have agriculture. Uh, the sun would be blacked out for 60 years. All your plants would stop growing. You'd have to go back to being a hunter-gatherer to even survive. Mm. Because before that event, the human population was much bigger than after that event. And we know this just from pure bones. You know what I mean?
0: No, yeah, I get what you're saying.
1: But that's why the Younger Dryas is so interesting, because... If there was a major civilization before it, we would have no evidence of it. We Mm. wouldn't know.
0: I guess. Do you ever think about this? Is kind of I don't know. Kind of brushes on kind of religious philosophical territory. But when we talk about like prehistory, it's almost like it's almost like incomprehensible how long ago that was. Um, Kind of. I guess what I'm trying to talk about is kind of like the the depth of time.
1: Um, oh yeah the the depth of time is, is especially if, if you ever talk to a geologist they'll tell you just how crazy it is like people don't understand how old the earth really is and how old everything really is
0: I think it's almost incomprehensible I, I just don't think like our brains are built to deal with stuff that occurs I mean like even, in, even humans have trouble with thinking about things in I don't know like a year sometimes like people just have I don't know if it's just like a human problem, but like uh, definitely short term uh, thought processes uh, benefit us in survival, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, like a, a good example to teach people just about the depth of human time, right? The Sumerians existed 8,000 years ago. Right. 8,000 years ago, mammoths still walked this earth in large numbers in Siberia, right. Northern America, Northern Europe. The Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, are closer uh, to us than they are to the Sumerians.
2: Mm. The
1: pyramids of Giza are built closer to our time period than they are to the Sumerians' time period. And that's just human history. So humans have been around for, especially our species, the sapien, have been around for about 200,000 years. Uh, humanity, as a general, like in terms of tracing our lineage back to a common ancestor, is about six million years ago.
0: I don't even know how to comprehend these numbers.
1: So six million years ago, our first offshoot from our common ancestor, I think, was either I think there's argument. It's either a, an extinct species that we didn't know about, or it's something involving a chimpanzee or bonobo, or that they may be offshoots of the same common ancestor. Right. Okay. But six million years ago, right? That's when we uh, as a race or a human race started technically, right? Evolving into what we are today. That's not even close to the 65 million years ago that the dinosaurs existed. Which is crazy to a lot of people that 65 million years ago is so long. And right just uh like in what's crazy about the earth and its climate right is 65 million years ago there was a shit ton more carbon in the atmosphere there's a shit ton more oxygen in the atmosphere now what these two contribute to is massive plants massive plants lead to massive animals that's why these animals are so huge right like how can a bronchiosaurus which is like 500 tons is Mm. that's crazy, right? That's so heavy. It's so big. It's like 500 feet tall. Like that's a monster, but to feed that and deal with gravity, right? You need some massive plants. This thing's got to eat so much. I mean, Mm. elephants already eat way too much. Right. And like, as, as time goes on, like, as you go further and further back, You get to time periods where there's so much carbon in the atmosphere, so much oxygen. Like before the dinosaurs, which I think is uh, uh, almost uh, 300 million years ago to 400 million years ago, Hmm. there were giant insects. And recent research has shown that the higher amount of oxygen an insect is exposed to, the bigger it gets. Hmm. And that's where you get the... Like dragonflies as big as you, you know what I mean? Like massive insects, absolutely humongous. So, so,
0: so would climate change, I guess in, in kind of a, a heating direction cause more, I guess, would, would that cause larger insects? Uh,
1: what, we, what, we, what, what the problem is right now, right? Is that we are actually losing atmosphere. Like, uh, as time goes on, uh, It's nothing we can do to stop it. There's nothing really we can do to stop it, right? It's just a natural course of a planet. Is that the atmosphere slowly fades away into space. There's not like a physical barrier holding it in. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just going to proliferate out into space over time. And this has been happening for almost a billion years now, right? Mm. It's like we've gone from around 50% oxygen in our atmosphere to around like 25% now. Right. And we've gone from a lot more carbon in our atmosphere than we do now. And that's that's also that's like causing uh, that's why uh, it's so hard for people to conceptualize giant insects, giant dinosaurs. Right. Because in our setting, like if they were put into our setting, they would never have evolved to be what they are in their setting. Right, there wouldn't have been enough carbon or oxygen. There there would have not been enough in the atmosphere or in the oceans or anything like that. And what's happening is the hotter our planet gets, the better it is for our planet, the worse it is for us. What do you you mean? Uh, Oh, okay. It's because when the planets are, like in prehistory, right, there is a time in the Earth's uh, lifespan, I think about 125 million years ago. And this is when the biggest fish in the world uh, roamed the Earth, right? These fish were massive, you know That's when the eighty foot crocodiles existed, the hundred foot lawn plus snakes, you know what I mean? but mm. in that in that instance, the climate was extremely hot. Like I think the average temperature of the Earth was about uh, five to seven degrees more than it is for us, right?
0: So, oh, so, so this is why you see these giant cold-blooded things because they can survive yes. in, a, in, a, in a wider area. They can area. survive in a wider but, area
1: and because the oceans are a lot higher, right? Like, back in the day, mm-hmm. all of North America was an inland ocean. The entire central part of North America was an inland ocean all the way up to North Dakota. Mm. Texas was completely underwater. We were completely underwater. The Sahara was a tropical... Uh, Paradise, basically, it was a giant swamp. The entirety of the Sahara, right? Most mm-hmm. of Europe uh, was completely swamp. All like basically everything around the earth that wasn't immediately inland was a swamp
0: actually i i think i want to talk about a claim you made so so you said that it would be bad for us but good for the planet what do you mean by good for the planet do, do you think it more so be a kind of a, a, a neutral action for the planet and just bad for all the living things on the planet in the short Well, period? the
1: hotter the planet gets the more uh things that usually grow usually that means tropical environments tropical environments produce more plants more animals uh usually more plants mean more oxygen more oxygen uh Like The the problem is the carbon aspect of it. Carbon is the problem with it all because carbon uh, disseminates into the atmosphere and never comes back, right? Oxygen can be made Mm. from carbon by plants and animals can turn the oxygen back into carbon, but eventually it'll all dissipate into the earth. That's what happened on Mars. That's why Mars is so similar to us, why it has ice caps, but for some reason it's a dead planet. Even though we found evidence that there may have been life on Mars, it was what do you what do you mean by life? Just like micro microorganisms. microorganisms that are fossilized, dead for millions upon millions of years, right? I don't uh, know if it's for, like it's like how they found micro uh, organisms on a comet, right? Recently, and uh, the reason for that is that Mars' atmosphere just dissipated into space, just stopped uh, being there.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna need to look into that more because I I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, it's it's fine. I did know that Mars had water. Uh
1: but um like that's that's the problem, is that uh as the sea oceans rise, right, it gives the chance for the Earth to um try to recover some of what it's lost, right? Uh for us it's terrible. Almost
0: all yeah, the- and for all the art and for all the Arctic animals and plants, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, too. but it's, it's
1: like it's like a it would basically turn the Arctic into a tropical island, is what it would do.
0: Se- seven degrees
1: warmer would yeah. do that. That's what the Arctic originally was. And so In parts of its history, it was a tropical island. Isn't that crazy? That's why. That's why. That's yeah, why really the depth of time that. is so incomprehensible to us. We can't grasp it. Right. It took only six million years for us to uh, evolve, right? Only six million. The dinosaurs existed for almost uh, six hundred to five hundred million years. Like that's. I, um, I
0: hear, I hear a lot about how we're due for, or I guess how we're overdue for a mass extinction event. What do you think about well, that? There's, there's been there's...
1: seven events that have been considered at the level of a mass extinction event right? And the mass extinction events themselves are are a weird concept for us to try to grasp and like be like, oh, we're overdue for one, right? Because the last Mm -hmm. mass extinction event was 65 million years ago, right? And there was an extinction event at the Younger Dryas. It just wasn't a mass extinction event. And I mean, uh, I know the extinction event, uh, there's two extinction events, massive extinction events there were only like uh 10-20 million years apart right it's not like these people are basically averaging it and then using that average and then adding it to the last mass extinction event you know what i mean right it's not like uh, anything concrete involved in it mm but that but, but that's what i'm saying with the depth of time right is that a lot of you're like there's no fucking way the antarctic was a tropical island you know but at one point during the earth's history it was and at another point during the earth's history the entire earth was almost covered in ice you know what i mean that's that's the that's why that's why the depth of time is so important for people to understand is that the time is so like this is such long periods of time like like people are like well how the heck that a mass extinction event occurred 65 million years ago and we're here today.
0: So I I think that's, what's crazy about it. Right. Because a lot of the time, I mean, like I do a bit of ecology work and I, and I, I like to think that I know a little bit about ecology, but we, it it just kind of occurred to me when we talk about um, like how climate change might be like the increase of like 0.5 of a degree, like it, it might not sound like a lot, but in reality, like, like you were saying, it was seven. It was a seven degree difference between us now and having eighty a, foot crocodile. Right, right, right. In 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 a kind of a Compl- like com- more tropical climate yep. farther north.
1: Yeah, but that's that's why it's so important. That's why that's why climate science is so important, right? We need to understand mm-hmm. why our carbon and oxygen are disappearing. How to keep them here? Like keep it on our planet, so we don't turn into Mars, right? We gotta mm. figure out how to make sure our planet doesn't heat up too much. Because
0: how do you create an at- how do you create an atmosphere in the first uh, how do you create an atmosphere in the first place? Right, because like it had to get here. Well,
1: um, that's the the first living things on Earth created our atmosphere, and those living things were these uh, type of microbes that would live on rocks, right? And the only way these yeah. microbes existed was because of water on our planet. And what they would do is they would eat a specific—I uh, forget what it was—in the atmosphere, and it would turn that into oxygen, right?
2: Okay.
1: And as it would continue to turn it into oxygen, it would release carbon, right? Mm. It, it was like a, it was like a complicated set that took almost a couple like a billion years just to create it's like it's like this wasn't this occurred over a billion years to create this atmosphere right and produce the carbon amount just enough to create plant life you know what i mean
0: right then, so so that makes it a really big deal if we're ever trying to get it yeah, back because it's, it's gonna take it's a billion yeah. years is
1: crazy and then it took another. it's
0: already outside the it's, I was going to say, it's already outside the even like 10 times the, the lifespan of the of the dinosaurs, yep. right?
1: And then what happened was uh, it took another billion years to go from a leap of just plant life to life like a fish. Or a, mm. like the, I think the first ones were, um, uh, what's it called again? Uh, what, not sauropods, the uh, crustaceans were the first life. They were the most, uh, but that's what I'm saying. Like 1 billion years to create the atmosphere, 1 billion years to get to the life that we know it as we, like, as we conceptualize it.
0: So like animals, like to animals.
1: Yeah. And that's 2 billion years. We've only been around max 6 million. And that's not even us as homo sapiens. That's just our ancestors. Homo mm. sapiens have only been around for 200,000 years, and what's crazy right. is in that 200,000 years' time, we went through an entire ice age, and right. that's only 50,000 years. So, 50,000 years, uh, the climate of the earth was completely different than we know it as now. And Mm. now you have to conceptualize that 50,000 into that 2 billion years. That's how many climate, that's why climate cycles are like, there's so many of them and they occur so uh, frequently and there's so many different conditions, right? Like a lot of the, after almost every mass extinction event, there was an ice age. And that's partly why the mass Mm. extinction event was so successful because it basically killed everything at the initial impact And then any stragglers were killed by the ice after that.
0: Right. And and, I mean, it's probably because of the blocking out of the sun, too. You have nothing to do, right?
1: And that's why why usually after a mass extinction event, life takes so long to get back on its feet, right? That's why the last mass extinction event was 65 million years ago, but it took the earth about 10 million years to recover from that event. Mm. And 10 million years is really long especially conceptualized to humanity, right? Like you probably in your mind cannot conceptualize 10 million years.
0: Yeah, I don't even think it's possible. But that's why I'm saying
1: it's so crazy because at some points in the Earth's life cycle, it was a little bit closer to the sun and much, much hotter, right? At some points in Earth's life cycle, it was in a mass extinction event and almost completely covered in ice. Hmm. And that's why the depth of time is so important for people to understand, especially if you want to like be a proponent of evolution, right? You have to teach people mm. how much time actually has occurred for evolution. Because people are, like, right. people are like, how the fuck does it go through all of these different... Um, how does evolution work? How can it do this randomly? And I'm like, it takes a lot of time, but the amount of time it's had is more than enough, right?
0: Hmm. I guess kind of to switch topics completely. Like, what do you think? I I mean, I know you're kind of a proponent of it in some ways, but what do you think about kind of the Buddhist tenets? And I guess kind of outline what they are first, because I'm not even quite sure what they are. Well, Buddhism
1: itself uh, is what I believe is the quickest and best way for a human to self-realize and self-actuate, right? I believe that Buddhism... uh,
0: you you just think it's like a tried and true, formula, yeah, a tried tried and and true formula, formula
1: for somebody to take a look at themselves from a distance and to recognize mm-hmm. what is wrong with them and what they need to fix. And as you know, a lot of people in society do not do that. And mm-hmm. a lot of the mystical parts of Buddhism were added on after the Buddha's death. Uh, it's like how a lot of uh, mysticism was added on after Jesus died. Right. Even though he like, uh, said there was another God and stuff. A lot of the stuff he did was, uh, over, um, emphasized into a greater spiritual importance than what he put on it. Right. And mm-hmm. Buddhism and its tenets like the tenets of Buddhism are basically that, uh, like none of this is real. Uh, you are the controller of do you of what destiny. Do you, what do you mean none of this is rude? Uh, it's, it's basically like you cannot trust your own senses. Once you start to understand your senses completely, you understand that they are incomplete, right?
0: They're, They're fallible. fallible.
1: They're not going to be able to give you what you want. The only thing you can trust is your own brain. So that means that everything around you does not exist. It's, the, it's it's like that a almost, mass simplification of the idea, right?
0: I was I was gonna say this seems like a weird kind of Cartesian way. It's
1: uh, it's it's like a a lot of the problem is it's translation, right? It's from Sanskrit to to English, and almost and what's crazy is that most of Sanskrit can't even be, be translated into uh uh like Hindu, it's impossible, and that's a root language of Hinduism is sans- Sanskrit. And that's why like uh, that's why uh, saying like something like none of this exists is what I mean is none of the outside world as you perceive it. Once you understand how your senses work is how you, how it's perceived. Right. It's a, but the easiest way to say that in a one sentence, right. Is none of this exists. If that makes sense.
0: Right. Right. But what really what you mean is like none of, none of, None of what is out there is actually as it seems. Exactly. Right, okay. And
1: then the other core tenet is you can only trust yourself and believe in yourself. Life is suffering. You cannot change that. To free yourself from suffering, you have to fully actualize yourself. Those are the core tenets. And
0: what does that mean? What does it mean to actualize
1: Meaning once you understand the tenets, you don't understand them in a purely... Uh, reading format, right? You don't read them and be like, oh, I understand them because I understand the language behind it. Like, I have meditated on this and have come to feel it, basically. I feel what that meaning is. I fully understand it. And when I fully understanded these core tenets, I understand that attachments are useless. I understand that pure love is the only way to fully escape suffering. And once I have reached and achieved that potential, I have freed myself from life. Mm. So, Buddha's original tenets weren't uh, free yourself, you go to nirvana, right? When you die. What his original tenet was once you have realized and actuated and come to the point where you have freed yourself from suffering, right? You've freed yourself Mm -hmm. from life. You can still be alive and do this. And once you've freed yourself from life, you've achieved nirvana because you've achieved a level of happiness that is free of suffering. Hmm. And his his rebirth, the Buddhist rebirth policy is basically you keep going through life until you achieve this.
0: How should a, I guess, a modern listener kind of interpret this philosophy? Because how how old is Buddhism really?
1: Uh, it's, I think it's, Hinduism is the only religion that's currently in practice today that's older than it.
0: So, but how old does that make Buddhism?
1: Uh, Buddhism is, uh, 500 BC. Okay. Hmm. And, uh, I think it might be a little later. I think it's 700 BC, but it didn't get like fully codified into a religion until about 500 BC.
0: Okay. That's interesting actually.
1: And it it was in Northern India on the border of the Himalayas is where Buddha was born.
0: Why did all these religions, I guess, start in such a, I guess a close proximity, right? Because you have like Buddhism, Christianity, or I mean, I guess I suppose, how old is, how old is Judaism? Did Judaism not come before Buddhism then?
1: Uh, No, Judaism, uh, I think came, uh, if you, if you agree with the Judas Judaism books, right. Uh, they claim to be like 15,000 BC or older. Um, historians can't really pinpoint it. Right. Okay. We don't know if they started, uh, three to 200 BC. We don't know if they started and how, what they claim in the books, which is back in the, uh, new age of Egypt, which is, I think like, 3, 1,300 years ago, right? Mm. So, I I mean, like, Judaism, I can't really speak on. I don't know 100% on uh, the history of how it came about. But I know that um, Buddhism, especially for modern listeners, is you don't need the spiritual side of it. Just the benefit of meditating on who I am helps you answer and resolve questions that you have within yourself that, really uh, give you a greater clarity on how you want to uh, pursue your life and how you want to, um, like, live your life. You know what I mean? And so say say you're having a question about uh, what do I want to do, right? If you use the Buddhist tenet or philosophy of self-actualization, you meditate on that, you separate yourself, and you just think about it.
0: Mm.
1: And you'll come to an answer that you'll be happy with and you'll understand is the right answer.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email industryplant at industryplant.co. See you in the spring.